The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, I am delighted to welcome my guest, Ms. Emily Jackson. She is the director and founder of the Growing Minds Farm to School Program, which is a project from the Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Project. It is a fabulous program that provides farm-to-school support and resources to preschools and K-12 school systems in western North Carolina and the southern Appalachians. Emily also co-facilitates the North Carolina Farm to Preschool Network and serves on the North Carolina Farm to School Coalition. ASAP was an original regional lead agency for the enormously popular National Farm to School Network, and in that capacity, Emily worked with schools and programs throughout the southeastern United States. Emily is a former K-6 teacher, and she lives on a farm in beautiful Marshall, North Carolina, with her husband, nine chickens, and two dogs. She loves to garden, cook, and is particularly enthusiastic about children's literature. I happened to meet Emily serendipitously at the American Horticultural Society's meeting in St. Louis in 2009, where we just happened to be bus seat mates on a field trip, and I admired her enthusiasm for her work with children, gardening, and good food, and naturally we became fast friends. Emily, it is great to have you. Oh, what a pleasure to be here with you. Well, I think that your particular program, the Growing Minds Farm to School program, really stands out, and it stands out to me as a dietitian because you've got what so many people are trying to recreate, and that is you have got a lot of really good resources for people who are just trying to get programs started. What I want to know is how did you get started in this brilliant idea to connect farms with schools? Well, I grew up here in western North Carolina, and we're surrounded by farms, and as you mentioned in my bio, I was a teacher. And so my children were surrounded by farms, and yet they didn't know where their food came from. And I just thought that was a crime. And so I started a garden with my kids. Then they were third grade. And their enthusiasm, their interest, their interest in eating everything we grew, you know, I was just blown away. I had no idea. And it also gave me hope for children's innate curiosity because I'd been taught that when I went back to school to become a teacher, but I didn't see it being played out. And so I got to see their innate curiosity come alive with the school garden and eating things. And then I felt like I was reconnecting them to their agricultural heritage and to the place where their food comes from. Mm-hmm. So how was that for you? You were just able as a teacher to start a garden at your school? Yes, I did that. I'm guilty of that. It's better to ask for uh, <laughs> forgiveness and permission. Yeah. So I had a local farmer that I knew, and he came up and plowed up a section of the playground. Not probably the way I would recommend others to do it, 
but I did have a really nice principal, and he gave me the benefit of the doubt. And so the first year I just did it with my classroom with the help of that farmer. He came up and helped me a lot. And then the next year I taught in a different grade, and all of the teachers in that grade level got involved as well. What was it that sold those teachers on the benefit of taking the time and energy to put in a garden? I think them seeing how much it motivated their children, I think they had their eyes open to all the amazing possibilities of using a garden as an instructional tool. All of these teachers were also very intensely in love with children's literature and so all the books. So if you, even if you just wanted to use a garden for literacy, the books are, you know, there's hundreds and hundreds of them, you know, to expose children to through this process. And so it was really just the benefit to the children and the ease of incorporating it into their curriculum. Mm-hmm. Now you are in North Carolina, so yes. I'm assuming that your growing periods, although you're in the mountains, so it might be shorter than I'm thinking, but what I hear from a lot of school districts and from parents and teachers, it's like, well, you know, the garden only just really starts to produce when the kids are not in school. How do you navigate that? We do specialize in what types of seeds are best for school gardens. In fact, one of the services that we provide is free seeds. So we make sure we stockpile the seeds that can be successful growing in late winter, early spring, that can, they can realize the benefits from by the time school's over. So that's the spinach and lettuces and radishes and things like that. And then some schools do have summer programming, so they're more willing to go with the longer things that do mature during the summer months. So we try to walk a fine line between that. And then, of course, transplants will put you further ahead in that process of planting a seed. Right. Um, And then who maintains the gardens? Is it the classroom, the children alone, along with the teachers, or do you need extra help to get this going? Well, that's one of the many beauties of a school garden is that no one is alike. So some, if you have really sweet custodial staff and you say you can also get anything out of the garden that you want is one way that I've seen schools handle it. The way I handled it at my school the first year is we planted the garden and then it got overgrown in the summer. It was overgrown with morning glory vine. Mm. And then when we came back to school, I realized my children thought we planted the morning glory instead (laughs) of it being a weed. And they really responded to the beauty of that weed and they made tunnels through it. And then it was kind of a discovery to find something that was growing there. So And then our garden was kind of tucked back into a back corner where we were allowed to maybe be a little bit messier. (laughs) Um, Some other schools do things like have parents sign up for a week throughout the summer to come and take care of it. Horticulture students at community colleges have had to come to school gardens and work in them for credit for their classes. So I think it's just the limitation of your imagination of the types of scenarios you can come up with to offset that burden. Mm -hmm. These are all great ideas for other school districts to consider because I think that even though your climate and your environment is going to be different, I think we probably have more in common in terms of some of our challenges and ways to get around that. Now, one of the questions I want to know is how are these kinds of garden projects funded? Well, 
I get a lot of calls about funding for gardens, and we do provide some mini grants here for, at ASAP to help, you know, with just some small amounts of things. But somebody called me the other day and said they wanted to get a garden started at a senior facility for senior citizens, and they asked me what kind of grant they needed. And I just, you know, I was talking really nicely with this gentleman, but I just said, you know, if you were going to grow a garden in your backyard, you wouldn't think about what kind of grant you need to be able to do that. And I think thinking it takes a lot of resources and a lot of money to make a garden happen only epitomizes to me how far we are from our food and how disconnected. So I really preach that it doesn't take very much. It takes a few tools. It takes some seeds, maybe a few soil amendments. But if you reach out into your community, you know, those grandmothers and grandfathers that know about gardening or, you know, farmers or cooperative extension, you mostly have those resources in your community to tap into without having to spend a lot of money. And then the the bonus of that is that we're showing children that it doesn't require a lot of money and a lot of infrastructure. And so to me, true success is when a child gets so excited about this experience that they want to recreate it at home. Mm-hmm. And if it doesn't take a lot of resources to make that happen, then that child's going to realize that he or she can do that at home. Yeah, that's a really important lesson. Well, what kinds of aha moments have you had as a teacher working with children in the garden? Well, that's about endless, but I can tell a couple of stories. Well, one real funny one, I'll start with this. This just shows how children's minds work. So we were working in a garden, and we had some bags of composted cow manure that we were needing to move from the truck to the garden. And this one little second grader is just pulling on this bag, you know, across He's pulling, it's really large and heavy, so he's having to just pull it across the grass. And he stops in front of me, and he looks at me very seriously, and he said, I just want to know, how did you get them to do it in the bag? <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, that was just a kind of a precious moment. But, you know, he's really thinking about, you know, how did this get in this bag for me to be putting this on the, on the garden? I know what it is, but, you know, yeah. so he's trying to process that. That's so um, funny. And then other conversations I have with children, we're told over and over again, and I'm sure you know this as a dietitian, that children won't eat healthy foods. Oh, yeah. We've already made that case. And I saw firsthand that, yes, indeed, they will. And, in fact, they ate so much in the garden that I had to make a rule that they could only eat food in the last five minutes. Oh, because they wanted to eat so much. So they were just dispelling myths about their food preferences right and left. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, that to me was like if children have a relationship with this food, if they've grown it, if they've prepared it, if they know where the food comes from, I think all of those things lead to children being more engaged with that food. And then they're just like adults. You and I, we want our food to taste good. We want it to be presented nicely, and they do too. Mm -hmm. Well, I should let our listeners know that the website for your program is growing-minds.org, and I have spent quite a while perusing all of the resources that you have on the page, but you also have some videos, and 
again, your point is so well taken. So many times I have heard teachers and parents say, well, you know, I'm not going to make those vegetables or we're not, we can't serve those vegetables in school in the cafeteria because the kids are just going to throw them away. And, you know, if a food is coming out of a can, if it's been overcooked and held on a steam table, I probably don't want to eat those, say, green beans either. But if I'm growing them and harvesting them and taking a role in nurturing those crops, those plants, then I do. I have a totally different relationship with food. And I, I think that these school gardens and teaching children to cook is really an answer to so many of the public health concerns that we see in our country. Oh, I think so, too. Yeah. So we believe that children get it. You know, they get that if I'm in this garden, I want to work, I want to eat the stuff that comes out of it. You know, we're not having to, to twist their arm at all. You know, taste test, cooking, they're, they're right there with us. And it's really the adults that are surrounding them that we really have to focus our attention on now. So we're really trying to get the parents and the teachers and cafeteria staff, all the adults that are surrounding these children, we need them to get on board for these initiatives to flourish. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Let me take one break to remind our listeners that if you're just joining us, you are tuned into Food Sleuth Radio, where we are joined by Emily Jackson. She is the director and founder of the Growing Minds Farm to School program of the Appalachian Sustainable Agriculture Product, affectionately known as ASAP. Okay, Emily, let's talk about some of the lesson plans, because this is an area where Anytime we think, oh, we've got to start from scratch, we don't have to recreate the wheel. I think your lesson plans are some of the finest that I've seen. You've got preschool lesson plans, recipe lesson plans for K through 2. You've got food and farm lesson plans for children that get a little bit older and can comprehend more. And I just want to say that these lesson plans are not just for schools. If you've got a break with your child coming up and you're thinking, oh, the kids are going to be home, what are we going to do? Instead of plugging them into a screen, let's start talking about our food and our food system. And I tell parents, even if it's just growing a little cherry tomato plant in a pot on a sun porch, grow something because I think it will open up so many opportunities for questions and to experience what good food really tastes like. Absolutely. And the lesson plans are a labor of love because we want to make it as easy as possible for teachers, preschool and K-12 to have a jumping off place, to not feel like they have to recreate it all. And, And once you get them hooked and you've got them in and they see how they can apply this to their different curricular standards, then they're going to make it their own. Then they're going to integrate it into the projects and the themes that they've been working on throughout the years and they have all the materials in, but then they'll figure out all those ways that they can bring farm to school into things across the curriculum. Mm -hmm. And we'd like to say with all of our resources, what we're trying to do at the end of the day is connect If there's a local product being served in the cafeteria or there's a taste test of a local product and then there's a teacher in the classroom or in the garden, which is the outdoor classroom, teaching a lesson about a local food product and then you have the children going home with the recipe cards and the stickers that say, I tried local, whatever the product of the month is, then what you're doing is connecting the three C's, the cafeteria, the community, and the classroom. And that's because we know that 
all learners, but especially young children, need to hear things in different contexts for that message to go home with them. And so hearing it in the cafeteria, the classroom, and then conversations at home really help to round that out for children. Now, I know that many teachers struggle with the curriculum loads that they have. You know, they have to many times teach to a test. Children have to succeed on the test in order for schools to get funding. It's very competitive. It's difficult for teachers. I've heard teachers who have been in the classroom for a long time describing the changes that they've experienced with less time to be creative. How do teachers find the time to do this work? It has gotten increasingly difficult. That's why we have tried to make so many resources. The, my familiarity with national curricular standards as well as state pretty much usually are telling what they want taught but not how to teach it. Mm. So I think sometimes we get a little bit too narrow focused on we're being told what to teach but not the how. And so that's where farm to school comes in. Then you can use these different ways of teaching cross-curricularly to get at those curricular standards because they're guiding you to what they want to have taught, the content, but not the methodology. Right. And I think that you and I have both been at meetings where we've seen how gardens really fit just about every single standard that could be required, math, science, reading, literature, writing. So really the world is wide open for a little creativity and how to make it work. I'm wondering how cooking plays a role with this. I see so many children and adults who the adults are working maybe multiple jobs. They're usually working at least one job. It's hard for them to find time to cook, and I worry about a generation of children who have grown up not watching their parents prepare food. And here you've got an opportunity where not only are children learning in the classroom and in the garden, but you're also teaching them how to cook the food. Yeah, we even had a whole conference a few years back that was just about cooking with children. Mm. So we had chefs and teachers coming together and talking about that and cooking together. But of the components of farm to school, you have cooking and gardening and farm visits. And we realized that not all families will grow a garden. Maybe they can't. They live in an apartment or something. Or and not all families, of course, will visit a farm. But all families do cook to a certain extent. And so if you're a family that is stretched for time, maybe stretched for resources as well, engaging your child in that cooking process, then the meal is is more than a meal. It's time with my child. So I'm spending time with my child. And, of course, there's different things that children can do developmentally in the cooking process. But engaging them from the minute they can stand on two feet, there is something that children can do. And so then you're cooking a meal, but you're also teaching your child. You're having some quality time with your child. And so it's it's more than just putting that food on the table. Mm-hmm. I can only think that the increase in farm-to-school programs like yours has contributed to what seems to be a little bit of a leveling off in childhood obesity rates. I really do believe that, you know, dietitians have been hitting their heads against the walls for many years trying to get kids to eat more fruits and vegetables. And, boy, if this isn't the way to do it, and it's just my gut feeling that this is really what's having an inroad, our programs like yours, 
I am also interested in knowing what kinds of changes in grades, you know, are children better able to focus in the classroom? And what about changes in behavior, you know, problem behaviors where kids are fighting or not paying attention? How are grades and behaviors changing as a result of these programs? The teachers that I've worked with over the last 15 years have all told me that when they're serious about this and their children know that this is something that they're allowed to participate in, that it has had a tremendous impact, especially on the behaviors. They know if the garden is something they get to do if they've you know, completed some work and they behave themselves, and then they're amazed at the unleashing of the curiosity that I mentioned earlier with their children and what they want to learn and how it just motivates them to learn. And so the teachers are really trying to use that garden as an outdoor classroom to bring that out more in children. I remember a quote, we interviewed children about the effects that the garden had had on them. And this was a while back, and one child said, it helps me see unseeable things. Um, And another child said, it makes me more curious. So there are research studies that show that children are doing better on tests as a result of gardens and outdoor classrooms, and then the anecdotal information that I've gotten from teachers throughout the course of the years has definitely supported that. Yeah. We, I think, as citizens have had a wake-up call, and I think it's quite obvious that we need to be paying attention to what our policymakers do, and we need to hold them accountable for protecting what matters most. And I I can't imagine anything mattering more than our children. And so what can we do as advocates for farm-to-school programs in terms of our communication to our legislators? What do we need to make sure gets funding? What do we need to make sure we see happening in schools so that we do have successful children at every grade level? Well, since the farm-to-school movement has been successful over the years, we've seen a lot of states enact farm-to-school legislation that allowed for more resources for a farm-to-school coordinator or organization of a project to get more local foods into schools. So that, if you don't have, you can go to farmtoschool.org, and they've got a listing of all the states that have farm-to-school legislation in the state. So that's One thing on the state level, locally, for the local food procurement or the local food served in your cafeteria, oftentimes school districts and states don't contribute to the school lunch funding. You know, they rely just on the federal funding. And so some districts or counties or states have decided to add additional funding for the school lunch program. So that's another thing you can advocate for. Then the child nutrition reauthorization is a reauthorization that happens every five years, and that dictates the funding and the nutritional guidelines for our schools. And so that got continued this last September 2016. And so our congresspeople need to hear from us and say, you know, we hope that not only will you keep things as good as they are, we, you know, we would love to see the school lunch program and the school breakfast program expanded and given further funding. Mm-hmm. 
Absolutely. I think it's so important that we call our legislators and develop relationships. Otherwise, they won't know how important and effective these programs are. Well, I have many more questions that I want to talk to you about, and I know that our time is fast slipping away. But I do have a question about intergenerational programs. Mm-hmm. The reason why I thought of this was when you mentioned earlier about how you know somebody had called about starting a senior program. Have you seen programs where we have older people joining with schools and you've got this beautiful intergenerational relationship building opportunity? I have. We've actually put some of that into place and working with senior facilities and schools, and it is just beautiful. You know, you get people the seniors who, who talk about their life experiences with children. And one elderly woman used to work in a school cafeteria back in the day where they made their own hamburger and hot dog buns and, of course, their cornbreads and their biscuits. But they just talked about, you know, they didn't have the processed food that we do today and they were able to pass on all these information. I remember they, of course, they did the traditional, you know, let's make butter together kind of thing, but just having the children understand and see value in the perspective of their elders was just beautiful. And then to see the older people being so energized by the young children coming to visit them and working together in the garden was just heartbreaking. Yeah, heartwarming. Yeah. Yeah. You know, it's so true. I don't know if you attended the same session I did at our American Horticultural Society meeting, but it was a session... I think that Cornell University had about intergenerational projects and how elderly people were removed from their isolation and loneliness. So I can only imagine that there would be health benefits for every generation involved in these projects. Absolutely. I definitely think that's a win-win, and it's something I have heard more cropping up across the country, more people realizing that, You know, we do have an aging population, the baby boomers, who won't be around all that much longer, and we need to really be tapping into that knowledge and that experience. Yeah. Well, we only have a couple of minutes, so let me put the ball in your court, and I just want to give you an opportunity to share with our listeners anything you want them to know about your work. I guess our website is just full, full, full of of great resources, and we have a searchable database of children's literature and the reason why I say go there is because you'll get some hopefully you'll get some inspiration because if you're interested in in children and gardens and good food then just equipping yourself with the fewest little skills and tips can help you you know if you you can go out and volunteer to cook with a classroom you can you can go into a cafeteria and conduct a, a cafeteria taste test you can help a school start a garden if they don't have one. Or maybe you want to give a tour of your local farmer's market. You know, that seems a little beyond the school grounds, but you may be working with children and their families, you know, of the school age. Buy locally grown food of your own. Be that model. You know, so many times we're seeing adults not remembering that modeling is the most important thing we can do for the children in our lives. And just embrace it and know that one small, if you go into a classroom and read Blueberries for Sal and have a pint of blueberries that you share with those children, you have no idea what an individual child or many children in that classroom 
people do with that experience. Well, Emily, I want to thank you so much for being with me today. I want to thank our listeners for joining us. And I want to remind everyone that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. Most of all, I want to thank Emily Jackson. She is the director and founder of the Growing Minds Farm to School program of ASAP. And we will provide a link to your beautiful, rich website, growing-minds.org. Emily, thank you so much. Thank you, Melinda.